Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Marco, welcome back to 10% True. Hey, Steve. Good to see you again. <laughs> so so this is interview number three. For anybody who hasn't seen the other two, watch them because uh, that will help add some context to the things that we're about to talk about. Um, so so after our second hour and 45 minutes of, of chatting, uh, we got to yeah. the point where you, you're still flying the Eagle at uh, Mountain Home as part of the 390th Fighter Squadron. Um, mm. You mentioned that off camera that you'd done a WESIP, which is a weapon systems evaluation program. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little about that? What is that? What's the purpose? And what was your experience? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, it was after my second deployment to uh, uh, Middle East, which was over in Bahrain, and we did AEF-7. So uh, we'd kind of gone back to back to back uh, deployments from uh, 97 and 98. And uh, so actually, this was near the end of my time before I, I left to go to Kadena. But uh, we got picked up for WESA. Uh, slot so that is the uh, uh, weapons something employment program uh, standards and employment program I think uh, basically what it is is an opportunity to go down to Tyndall and go, fly out over the uh, Gulf Range and uh, shoot live weapons um, and so not necessarily with warheads although they do that too uh, mostly that goes out of Eglund um, but uh, but uh, shoot different uh, weapons and at different type targets. Sometimes uh, you get to shoot full-scale drones like uh, like an F-4 or, or by the time I was there, F-16s, uh, shooting down an F-16, which is kind of weird. Uh, or or in my case, I, I shot at a uh, subscale drone with a um, heat canisters on the wingtip. So um, I was actually the first one in the squadron for a live shot on that deployment. And we went down and you have a couple of days. We just fly local area in Tyndall to get used to the airspace and just, you know, one or two flights. And then, uh, and then we went up to, to shoot, uh, the missile. So for me, it was an aim nine, uh, which was really cool. I kind of asked to shoot an aim nine, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, is you're up in close, uh, and I wanted to be close to the target to see that. Uh, and then second, it's, uh, mounted, uh, on the pylon, you know, so it, it fires from the jet instead of being like an, uh, aim 120 or an aim seven, uh, that are a fuselage mounted, they kind of get pushed off and then light. Uh, so I wanted to have the experience of it, you know, shoot firing off the jet. And so uh, anyway, I got to go do that. And so we took off and, and basically you have a chase guy from the uh, WESIP squadron who's a safety observer and uh, set, helps set it up. Um, but we're out headed uh, westbound out 
into the Gulf and the drone is already airborne and it, it's coming opposite direction. So you, you pick it up on the radar, uh, do a little uh, stern conversion on it. And uh, when you get basically beak to beak, it starts a 4G turn. Uh, so it's pretty predictable. Uh, it's a pretty predictable platform, but uh, you get come around and uh, and then hammer down. So so for mine was actually uh, I don't know if the guy was not paying attention or what, but I'm I'm switches are hot. I'm ready to fire. So I call you know hey, uh, I think it was once hot and uh, nothing. So I call it again and and finally he says uh, clear to shoot and I, I hammer down and right as I push the pickle button. I get a uh, break X in the, in the HUD and I'm like, oh crap. I think I, I might've shot inside break X, um, but you get the, the big bang, uh, man, it was, it was incredible. Just a boom on the left wing. So I was in a left hand 4G turn, get the bang on the left side. And then uh, the missile comes off and, and I see it, it's coming down uh, at the target and actually hits it, it hits the right wing of the uh, drone and, and uh, blows the uh, heat sensor off the tip of the wing. Uh, and so we come off and, and come back. And uh, so that, that was it, it's pretty fast. I mean, it's a, it's a push the button, big bang, whoosh, and it's over, a uh, little smoke trail. Um, but then you go back and review review the tapes and see what uh, see what you did, look at your intercept and and look at the shot. And so I was happy as I reviewed my film that it was it was two frames prior to break X uh, when the witness mark came up on the film. So I, I wasn't inside min range uh, and we had a hit. So they have telemetry on the missile. They can tell, uh, you know, that it hit. There was a, the missile fused. Right. And as I said, it kind of it kind of knocked the uh, the heat sensor right off the right wing tip of the missile of the uh, drone. And uh, it was a sidewinder, so I, I really kind of learned why they call it that. Because uh, obviously, if I have a 4G turn, I fire, the missile goes under the jet, curls up, and it comes through in the back into the HUD field of view from above and to the right of me. Uh, so as it's coming down into the target. So it, it circled like a big, whoom, a big corkscrew into the target. But but yeah, it was amazing. And and I, I kind of always have said the feeling of it is like, you know, you, you shoot a shotgun or something, you feel that recoil in your shoulder. It feels like that, except it's the whole jet. The whole jet kind of goes, boom. And uh, so it's not long, but just you can, you can definitely feel it. And uh, so that was, that was pretty cool. Did you fire an AIM-9X or was it a, an L or an M? No, it was a Mike, uh, Mike Dash 8. Uh, so yeah, AIM-9 Mike Dash 8. Uh, we, when I, that was 98. Uh, so we didn't have X's yet, um, except pro they probably did over in test side uh, where we're testing them, but we didn't have them yet. Um, so yeah, it was just a, a aim at Mike. So, so from these, um, from the, the Air Force's perspective, then I mean, I guess anybody who, who wonders whether or not it's a bit wasteful to, to do this. <laughs> what are the what are the yeah. advantages to the uh, the, the pilot? Uh, well, I mean, getting that feel and, and the, the adrenaline rush to actually hit the pickle button. Uh, for me, I mean, I think I think for a young guy who'd never uh, maybe done and dropped anything live before, it might be more uh, important. Um, but I think in, in back a couple of weeks ago, we were in, in number one. You remember I talked about the first time I actually popped off a flare in combat at night by accident. Uh, that... I think if it would have been an AIM-9 mic, <laughs> it would have been scarier. Uh, so, so that uh, it was more than a, than the flare at night uh, feeling. So, I think it was good to feel that 
and to kind of just get that um, first time uh, over with so you're not concerned about it. Again, I'd been in combat already twice you know, in the F-111 and then uh, twice in the Eagle. So it, it wasn't like, uh, you know, I had never kind of done stuff, but uh, but it still, it was impressive and it uh, uh, I was glad to have done it. A lot more than, like, I, I think we talked about it a little bit. I shot rockets. Maybe I don't remember if we talked about it. In the AT-38, we had uh, the Su-20 pod and the gun pod. We also shot rockets occasionally, two points oh, okay. rockets. And I shot a rocket out of a T-38, and it was more, way more than that. <laughs> so uh, it was it was quite a bit more than a rocket, a 2.75-millimeter rocket. <laughs> I think the F was also it uses stuff that's going to be time expired, doesn't it? So it will yeah. take something that if you don't use it now, it probably won't work if you, you know, right. it later. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is a little different when you go out to the airplane and you have a, an actual missile. Now, it didn't have a warhead, as I mentioned, but uh, it's got the you know full-up seeker that, that's going to be timed out. And then the rocket motor, which is time-limited in lifespan. Uh, and then the, the fins are different on a live one. They actually have some rollers that... Uh, that helps stabilize, and then of course they're they're all movable because it guides. Um, so the it's different than a uh, than the ones we carry for training that really are just kind of a shape with a uh, with the nose on it. Because we do use live seeker the seeker mechanisms uh, in training every day. They just don't have warheads or or the uh, missile body. Um, so um, so it's not a different seeker it's the same one we train with all the time but the but the rest of it everything behind this the seeker uh was different you know and 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 workable except except for the warhead do, do you feel pressure going out and doing a shot like that uh, a little bit um yeah you don't want to screw it up you know again wasteful may you know some might say it's wasteful to shoot the missile it's even more wasteful if you screw it up um so yeah you want to make sure you do the right thing and and that's why, you know, my initial, like, oh, crap, I shot at break X um, was, was there. You know, it wasn't that, you know, I saw it hit. So I know, hey, if, if, if I was inside break X, it still worked. <laughs> so maybe that's a data point uh, that uh, we would learn from. But, uh, but it was absolutely mid-range, and it hit. So it was, uh, it was a good validator for me that you can shoot it right at very minimum range, and it's going to operate exactly how it's supposed to and, uh, and hit the target. So that, that was a good thing to, to see in real life and learn uh, that it, it absolutely works. And it kind of almost in a good operational uh, flow. I mean, I wasn't at you know, high G, but I, I was in a four, four and a half, five G left-hand turn. Uh, when I fired it, so it wasn't you know just straight and level doing nothing. It it was uh, had some G on the jet, and it uh, everything worked perfect. Yeah, you mentioned data points. I remember talking to somebody about um, you know the way that sometimes they shoot these aim sevens at Wessup, where mm. and there is a fairly well known picture I think of four strike eagles all together firing aim sevens at the same mm. time. Um, and and as I understand it, they'll you know they'll test different profiles. So those missiles mm -hmm. will each have a slight. So one might loft, the other might go direct. Right. Uh, and, and and they do get telemetry and data points out of the performance of those different profiles mm -hmm. as well. So uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's another. Um, justification for going out and doing these things yeah every time you shoot it uh, we get more information on it so yeah that's a that's a very very valid point and, and we do do that at at uh west all, all that data is collected it's it's not lost uh, so uh, again you don't just go out and shoot them for uh for fun uh there's there's a lot of uh 
information gained by the pilot as well as the Air Force overall. So speaking of things quite nicely then into uh, a segue, but of things that are done with the intention of helping you guys as, as fighter pilots experience things outside of combat that you're going to experience inside mm -hmm. of combat. Tell us a bit <clears throat> about Red Flag and your experience sure. going, going to Nellis. Yeah, and uh, I think, again, I kind of mentioned when in the 111 timeframe uh, that I did the uh, TLP course instead of going to a Red Flag in the 111 because I figured, you know, if I flew fighters long enough, that would come up. And, and so it did when I was at Mountain Home, we got the chance to go to Red Flag. And uh, for us, it was pretty close. And we, uh, we actually took most of the wing. And uh, there was also other guys there. Uh, there always is. Um, but it's a, it's a two and a half, three, almost three week deployment down to Nellis. And uh, the antenna red flag is to give you your first, uh, you know, five or 10 actual kind of combat sorties to get you that stress, that level amount of stress and uh, against a realistic threat in a uh, pretty realistic scenario. Um, and so that, uh, again, I think, I think going to red flag after, you know, my fourth combat tour, um, for me was, I, I wouldn't say anticlimactic cause it wasn't. Um, but I, I went there asking myself, does, is this going to do what they think it's supposed to do, uh, in being very realistic and, and actually kind of giving you that, uh, that level of, uh, I guess, amped up feeling, um, that they're kind of trying to generate. And I think largely it did. Um, for us, it was, a, it was a night flag, mostly. The first week, we did a couple of day sorties, um, day familiarization for the uh, range and, and to you know, know the airspace. And then I flew one day sortie uh, the first week in a, in a, as a flag exercise. And that one was, uh, was pretty exciting because, you know, you can, you know, it's more fluid, I guess, at, during the day because at night we're – there is safety rules in peacetime. So we have uh, decks that we have to stay inside of so you don't go blitzing through the sky and into somebody else's uh, altitude block uh, that could be you know, a factor at night where you didn't see them or something. So, so it is a little more maybe uh, controlled at night. Uh, but during the day, it's, it's pretty, pretty crazy, all-altitude war with a lot of airplanes out there. And so my, my day flight, what I would say was – was pretty exciting. And, and because of the combat missions I did um, on my two deployments in Eagle, we didn't have any bad guys actually to fight. Uh, it was, it was scarier than, than, uh, than combat in some ways. So, so in that respect, I think it did what it's supposed to do is really get you that, uh, that level of um, anxiety to some extent and, uh, and, uh, uh, fluid environment with a lot of threats um, because they also have a lot of emitters. They have the ground threats going on. Uh, they have, uh, you know, smoky SAMs that they actually shoot. So you see things actually come off the ground. Um, and they have actual emitters that are going to run your uh, RWR scope and give you the sounds and, and the uh, inputs that are uh, real as in, in your system. So you're going to get a lot more of that. Plus, you always have AWACS or, or GCI. So I basically all the pieces are there. Um, and so it was a great experience. Um, and, and the Mountain Home Eagles, are, are C models out of Mountain Home, we, we did really well while we were there. Um, had a 24 to 1 kill ratio. Um, at Red Flag. Really? Mm -hmm. that's, that's interesting. I was reading a, a piece by Dave Deptula, uh, the, the, the general, mm -hmm. uh, well-known general on uh, – 
on the internet this week where he was talking about how the F thirty five had done well at red flag because it had a twenty to one kill ratio. Yeah. So, so so you guys did exceptionally well. Um yeah. can we talk a little bit about that process then? Um, you know, for anybody not familiar with it, uh is there real time kill removal? Do you regenerate? Um can you explain those things, those concepts? What, what yeah. like? Um for the blue air for the blue air side, we I don't think we were allowed to regenerate, but the red air does, uh, you know, so they're, they're S-16s uh, back then. It was, now they have actually some red air eagles that uh, have joined in. Um, but, but back then it was, I think they had some F-5 still, but a lot of the uh, bandits were F-16s. Um, and so they're pretty, you know, again, formidable aircraft out there. It's not, it's not just a toy that you're playing against. Um, but yeah, after you killed them, they could go back and regenerate. And basically what they would do is, is depart down low and go back uh, and come from one of the bad guy bases. So there, there was bad guy bases kind of back in the target area. So the whole flow at Red Flag is almost always the same. You basically come in what they call student gap, which is over on the east side of the range. And the, the blue side flows west. And there's, there's strike targets that they actually drop. During red flag, they'll drop uh, sometimes training or heavyweight or live ordnance there, and those target areas are in behind what would be a border of the other country. Uh, and so, when they regenerate, they come from uh, the airfield area uh, back in bad guy land. So it's not just you know go back and tag a point and come back. It's actually more realistic than that. They they regenerate from airfield areas that are on. Uh, the simulated map. Uh, so yeah, they they can regenerate multiple times uh, depending on how fast you kill them. Um, but uh, but yeah, we were able. To, we were you know we we did great. My my uh, I was a two ship flight lead at Red Flag. I hadn't uh, finished four flag yet. Um, and uh, I guess it was before my second deployment then because I was a four ship when we went to Bahrain. So um, so yeah, I guess it was in between. Um, anyway. Uh, I was flying as an element lead and, and I, I never lost a wingman and I never got killed. So, uh, we, we shot a lot of missiles and, um, got a lot of good, good training. And, uh, and like I said, I, we, I never lost my, my element never lost. So, uh, it was, I don't know, I guess, is it good to never lose? Um, maybe, uh, I think, I think we did really well. You mentioned, um, last time around, you know, being in in sort of big dogfights, uh, and and you, I think the expression you used was flush flush out. You know, to leave mm. those and come back in and, and rebuild your essay, and how that that was sometimes um, quite a scary experience. When, mm. when you said that uh, you were more frightened, well, not frightened, but you were, <laughs> you know, it, it elicited more yeah. uh, sort of fear in you in um, in Red Flag than it did going up against yeah. the Iraqi Air Force in Southern Watch. Are those the yeah. incidents that you're referring to? Those are the sorts of things you're referring to? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, when you get in those big package operations, because especially in an all altitude war like at Red Flag, and sometimes we uh, had these happen down at Hill Air Force Base. I mentioned we would go down to Hill or or over to Fallon and work with the Navy. Uh, so we we do a lot of big package ops in in those uh, exercises or or in those uh, in those goes and and so when you're doing an all altitude war and you, you're kind of ending up sometimes down at low altitude where everybody else is there's tons of people down there. you know and the Eagles like to be we like to be up in the 30s 
and uh, and really the F-15 was designed uh, to never lose at that altitude. So so it, there was nothing that could turn with us above 25, 30,000 feet. I mean, we were just, you know, Godzilla up there. Um, but once you came down low, there's a lot of people who can turn and, and, uh, and thrust isn't really a factor, you know. So so when you get down at the into the, you know, 5,000 foot area, five to 10,000 feet and, and everybody's flying all over the place, um, it gets it can get kind of uh, crazy. And that and at red flag, I, I saw that because because a red flag, we could go all the way down to low at. So we're down on the deck sometimes a uh, thousand feet. And uh, and now you're running around with the dudes who are flying low level, too. Right. So there's uh, there's all kinds of people down there. And you got to you got to keep your melon on a swivel and make sure you're not going to run into anybody uh, while you're running sort or trying to chase somebody down. And sometimes it could be a uh, you know slow speed guy too. Um, we did some stuff at Red Flag during our day sorties. Uh, there were C-130s that were acting as uh, uh, transports, bad guy transports that we would you know needed to pop them to if we saw them. And and so now you you kind of go down there. And I think we talked a little bit about the VID stuff before too. And and sometimes we were forced by the ROE of Red Flag for those guys. We had to go look at them. Uh, so, so yeah, you're, there's a lot going on and, uh, and a lot of airplanes out there. Um, so it gets, uh, sometimes it gets a little, little dicey. So, so, so VID, uh, speaking of which, um, you know, obviously generally the, the Eagle community is, is, is good at that, but there were, there were, you know, I think it was 94, there was that notorious mm-hmm. incident where two black horses were shot down yeah. uh, by some Eagles and mistaken VID. How much time do you spend looking at pictures of aircraft and doing your vis- visual recce um, training for one of a better word. Yeah, yeah a, a lot. Um, and that happened after, um, after I was done at Kadena and I knew, I knew some of those guys um, that were involved in that. I knew both of the guys, one of them after the, he was going into the AT 38 after at uh, Randolph and I ran into him and talked to him about it. Anyway, um, the problem with the pictures rather than seeing the actual airplane sometimes is, is paint schemes are different or, or that, that shoot down of the Blackhawks was a colossal amount of different errors, um, including they weren't squawking. They weren't supposed to be there. AWACS didn't know they were there. AWACS didn't say, Hey, there might be somebody there, even though they actually were talking to them or had talked to them. Uh, so there was there was a colossal amount of errors involved in that, not just the actual guys that sh- you know pushed the pickle button, although they're ultimately responsible because you know they're the ones that let the weapon go. But um, but yeah, they saw based on all of their other SA, and this is we talked about SA. You know when you think you have it but you don't, and that was I think one of those situations. They felt like they're uh, they had exhausted all the different thoughts of could friendlies be there. And then they saw kind of what they expected to see, or they made it match up. And they had never seen pictures of Blackhawks with external tanks, which have the little winglets and tanks on the outside uh, that made them look a lot like a Soviet helicopter. So, so there, there were a lot of errors in there. Um, but yeah, even before that happened, we, we would get tested routinely on uh, VIDs, on silhouettes and pictures. And, uh, you know, we'd be back in the vault going through those all the time and uh, we had routine tests on that um so it was a big part of it um and i i would hope if i was in the same situation that i wouldn't have uh, pushed the button but i i don't know 
I couldn't uh, couldn't tell you for sure. I mean, I, I didn't go into this interview intending to talk about this, but it just, no. <laughs> it just came to, it just came to mind. Um, can can you expound a little bit on how the Eagle community handled that event? Then um, you know, and I am, I mean, uh, look, you know, it's you can just yeah. decline to answer, but I'm curious <laughs> to know whether or not you know those two, you know, individuals were demonized or ostracized by the Eagle community. I mean, did, was there no. some sympathy for them? Yes, I think there was a lot of sympathy for them. Uh, we all kind of felt like. Like I just said, uh, you know, I don't know what I would have done if I was in the jet, but uh, I can't say that I wouldn't have done the same thing. Um, so it wasn't uh, there. We nobody thought it was malicious intent. You know, that was pretty obvious. And and uh, so we we did. There was a lot of sympathy for them. And and to be honest, I think that the Air Force was handling it pretty well until we got a new chief of staff that wanted to make an example of it and ended up uh, court-martialing the captain. Uh, and actually, that's when I ran into him. It wasn't kind of when that was starting to come up. And because of that, they before that, they'd said he couldn't fly Eagles anymore. Uh, and that's why he was going to the AT-38. And during that process, he was pulled out of training for the AT-38. And they basically said, no, you can't even fly anything uh, related. And matter of fact, you might not fly ever again. Uh, so, so we felt, you know, to be honest, I, th I think – it was a uh, mistake with a ton of causal factors uh, that uh, ultimately led to when, you know, to the action. Uh, but uh, I don't, I don't think that the air force necessarily and the end result of the way they handled it was, was the best uh, for the air force. I think it made a lot of people gun shy and, and probably second guess uh, things that would be valid later, you know, <laughs> hmm. You don't want to do that. I, I think in in aviation parts, sometimes people refer to all of the line, all of the holes in the cheese lining up. Um, mm -hmm. you know, if, if those they all it line did. up, then something bad happens, and and that was an example of that. Yeah, sure was. Did he go on um, the, the captain? Because I know the um, you know, and, and the names are on the internet, but we won't mention yeah. them. But but did the captain go on and get um, continue a flying career outside the air force? Or I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know him well, and uh, I'm not sure what happened at, after that. I I went to uh, do some other stuff, and I didn't keep tracks. Okay. Um, one thing I was going to ask you, and, and this might, you know, maybe we'll defer the answer to later on in the conversation because we, we're going to talk about training. But um, you know, you talked about one of the advantages then of something like red flag, and that it's sort of triggering triggering your radar warning receiver and, and giving you mm -hmm. an opportunity to see what that looks like, and, and you know, all the sounds and beeps and all that stuff. Is, is synthetic capability in the cockpit uh, something that could, you know, sort of replicate that? So if you look at modern, you know, fast jet trainers, typically they'll have a radar display. The, the guy in the back seat can make targets appear on the radar. Mm -hmm. They can make the, the raw ping, uh, do all those sorts of things. Um, is, is that something that would, you know, do a decent job or could do a decent job of, of actually, meaning that you don't have to do things like red flag anymore? I think, I think maybe um when i part of the stuff i was doing and, and this is post-retirement but i was working military stuff still here at eglin and uh with eglin and, and with the gulf range out here which is a national asset for what we can do uh, but part of the stuff that they were talking about with the f-22 and the f-35 is have getting sensors set up so that they could actually um not sensors but uh emitters so that they could train against emitters. And it, so 
I don't know if you can do it synthetically as much as put it, put them in certain places where you have to, where, you know, you can brief and say, well, I know the threats are going to be in these kind of areas as I go into the target and now they actually work. Uh, so I can react and that reaction is going to force me to do something that is, uh, in relation to the target. Now, can you synthetically add that? You know, probably. I know that uh, when I was at GIFCOM, which again was ways down from where we are now, we were working on those uh, live, um, basically combining live simulated and, uh, and some uh, synthetic all together, where maybe some of the guys are in the simulator somewhere in the air, and then some of them are just computer uh, generated. And, and that kind of fusion of different training types, I think, is good. Um, we did in the F-15 and, and in other airframes uh, simulators that were tied together, that were visual. And so that actually is really good training. And, and so can you tell if it's real or not? You know, maybe. Um, but, I mean, there's a difference than when you're in Iraq than when you're in Las Vegas, right? Because you know it's actually, yes, I'm going to train and I'm going to hear it and it's real uh, and it's the right sound and it's the right symbology on my scope, but I still know it's not going to kill me, right? So I, there's a difference, I think, in that respect. And and when you're in a simulator, you know, I hit the ground a lot in the simulator. I've never hit the ground in an airplane. <laughs> um, so I think that's... You know, the fact the the I still need to survive factor doesn't really exist the same way uh, in a simulated environment. And we and I think that could be something we could talk about more in the training section, too. Okay. okay. One, one final question about Red Flag. Okay. Um, I do remember. I can't. I can't remember where I heard it. It was. I was maybe interviewing one of the early aggressors or talking to somebody who worked at. You know the the uh, the ranges there, um, and and certainly through the eighties, there being an awareness that there were probably Russian assets locally who were sampling the air for electromagnetic um, signals uh-huh. and and so on and so forth. Um, and obviously, one of the things that you have in the airplanes is the radar and um, you know certain other electronic um, emissions. Um, are you are you required to sort of keep some of that stuff to a minimum? Are you, are you you know are there bits that you're told not to use in order that people don't you know get a trace on what the signals look like, or whatever? Sometimes, <laughs> uh, yeah, sometimes. Um, you know, the truth is, we we were sometimes worried about the French. <laughs> you know, are are they collecting when we're flying against uh, Mirage two thousands? Are they collecting more than they're learning? Uh, you know, so, so there's, uh, yes, we, we were cognizant of where we were and what potential collectors could be out there. And we, uh, did, uh, pay attention to that. Okay. That's a, that's a great answer. Thank you. <laughs> I, won't, I won't press you any further. <laughs> yeah. So was there anything else that happened uh, when you were at Mountain Home that was of significance? Uh, it, it was a great tour. So, I mean, we were, we did a lot and, and I, I expected to be there for three years. You know, it was uh, uh, one of those things I really wanted to wanted to be there for for the full three years because in my first two years we had you know like I said two deployments plus plus a couple of training deployments. So as I, I as I was kind of looking back at it, I realized I was gone a lot. You know, I was gone probably 
of more than a year of the two years I ended up being there. And the reason I was only there for two years ended up being that I ended up getting the assignment to Kadena, uh, or actually it was to Yakota. But uh, by the way that kind of happened was one day I was walking down my squadron commander then by then was uh, uh, Mitch Fred, uh, Fritter Fred, and uh, walking down the hallway, I was still a flight commander and Fritter is walking the other way and he goes, oh, hey, Marco, I forgot. I just remembered the, I was at the OG meeting and somebody said that you're getting orders to Japan. And I'm like, really? Cause I haven't even been here two years yet. It couldn't be. And I was thinking, well, maybe you get confused with, there was another guy in the squadron named Skinny McKinney and I'm McCaffrey. I'm like, maybe they meant Skinny. And he goes, oh, that would make a lot more sense. Maybe. Uh, so yeah, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll tell you later if it comes, you know, if it comes up. So I'm like, okay. So I, I only been there about, you know, 19, 20 months at the time. So less than two years, which really they hardly ever moved you less than two years. So I kind of blew it off. And, and then a few days later, he goes, oh, hey, Marco, remember that Japan thing? No, that's you. I got word you're getting orders to go over to Japan. And I'm like, what the hell? So, okay, what, what is it? And uh, ended up, I was going to be the F-15 operations officer at uh, 5th Air Force, which is at Yokota Air Base in Tokyo. Um, but it's a RIP-8 flying position, so I'd be flying with Kadena uh, down in Okinawa. And and for a RIP-8, we were required to fly uh, at least three times a month. So so at least a week a month, I'd be going down to Kadena. Uh, and then my the job was also working with the JASDAF, the Japanese uh, Air Self-Defense Force. Um, and their F-15 program, and then coordinating and being the liaison for them, as well as everything for the 18th wing for F-15s in the 5th Air Force area of operations, which was basically all of Japan, uh, down through Okinawa, kind of into uh, the South China Sea, and then up uh, all the way to the Korean Peninsula, but, but not Korea, because that was a different numbered Air Force. Uh, but a lot right along the Korean shore up into basically the Chimkat Peninsula up there in Russia and then out to the uh, east of Japan in the, in the Japanese Sea. So that was our AOR. And uh, anyway, so I, I said, OK, I guess I'm going to Japan uh, and kind of a funny anecdote. And I don't remember if we talked about it when I was at uh, when I was at um, Sheikh Isa, in Bahrain, we had done uh, an exchange with the uh, carrier that happened to be there, the USS Stennis. And I went and spent a few days on the Stennis uh, working with some F-14 guys. And the host guy that was there was this guy named Spidey Oman, who's a 14B guy. And uh, anyway, to make a long story short, he'd come to Sheikh Isa and I showed him around F-15s. And when we uh, parted, I you know, said, hey, it's a small world, maybe we'll see each other again. And uh, so he called me about the same time as this was happening and, and said, hey, I just got an exchange tour. I'm coming to Mountain Home in the F-15. And I'm like, hey, I have a house for sale. And uh, he came up and he bought my house and we went to Japan. How did your wife feel about that? Um, because that, I mean, that's a big deal. And, you, and if it's okay for me to say mm -hmm. you've got children. So uh, right. schools Three. and family yeah. friends and yeah, know, their friends. Right. I mean, it, it was, I think... To be honest, my my family is is awesome. My wife was a super super Air Force wife. Uh, she loved visit, uh, going to different places. 
Um, not that it was always easy or always our choice, uh, and this one wasn't. We loved our place in Mount Home. We'd actually built the house um, ourselves uh, when, when we got there, thinking we would be there for a while. Um, so we had built it, uh, plans and everything and picked everything out. So it was a hard house to leave. Um, but she was all in. And, uh, and so we, we headed out and we left, I think I had my Finney flight on the 17th of December at uh, mountain home. And, uh, and we headed out to, uh, you know, catch the flight out of California to go to Tokyo. So that sounds like uh, the description you've just given is a, it's a very F fifteen centric um, job. Then, so it might not be as good mm -hmm. as well. It wouldn't be as good as just having a pure flying job. But as far as the staff right. job goes, not too bad. No, it was about as good as you could get because I guess still got to fly. Um, so, uh, and everything I did was related to the F fifteen. And so when I got there, our office was in uh, called Fifth Air Force DOO Directorate of Operations. And so in DOO, we had four pilots uh, and they were each one for each of the major systems in, in the AOR. So, uh, well, not all of them, but um, me and the F-15, uh, we had a guy, J. Todd Hicks, who was an F-16 weapons officer. He was flying uh, up out of Misawa. Uh, and we had a helicopter guy in HH-60 who flew with the uh, rescue squadron down at Kadena. With, you know, we would go down together as often as we could. And then we had a C-130 pilot who flew with uh, the wing there at Yokota. So between the four of us, we covered, you know, most of the main systems uh, in the AOR and we were all, we were all active flyers. Uh, so we kind of divvied up when we would be gone uh, for our week a month. And, uh, and then we would coordinate issues with the Japanese air force uh, depending on weapon systems. So for me, it was pretty easy because the jazz staff had F-15 J's um, and I would help with those a lot. And the C-130 person was doing C-130s. They flew 60s, so our 60 guy was uh, working with that. For the F-16, they didn't have those. Uh, so JTOG kind of just worked stuff at Misawa and then uh, anything else that was uh, necessary like airspace and all kinds of different other issues. So for a weapons officer, I'm, I'm, I bet he was pleased with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they they got the I can't remember what it's called. Is it the J two? It's like a little copy of the F sixteen. Similar, any, any but it was it was yes, but they didn't have them yet. Um, ah, so okay. and they were still flying uh, just the F four. They had F four Js down in Naha in Okinawa and uh, had a couple of F four F four bases. Um, but mostly Eagles and F-4s is pretty much the mainstay fighters. And then they had a couple of other uh, Mitsubishi kind of homegrown Japanese aircraft, the F-1, uh, but not the French F-1. It was a Japanese F-1. Uh, and those were, all, those were all gone now, but replaced by the FJ-2, which is basically an S-16 lookalike. So what, what um, was the purpose then of your supporting the, the JASDAB with their F-15? I mean, what kind of things were you helping them with? Uh, well, there were several things, and, and it was funny when I first got there. One of the first things they told me was, here, "We had a vault, obviously, with uh, you know all the U.S. classified stuff in it. But in the vault were several uh, file cabinets, and they were kind of uh, filled with information by topic, which was funny because uh, basically the people who had been around for a long time, we had some civilians that worked uh, continuity for us, and they'd go, "Oh yeah, hey that." They they basically the Jazz Def comes back with the same issue every three years, 
because they figured there'll be new people and the answer might be different. Um, and so some of them were unique and some of them were new. And the ones that I worked the most, and it had come up several times, one of them was air refueling for the Jazz app. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about why they wanted to do it in a second. But uh, And then another was active missiles. So now they were kind of interested in how do we maybe get it in A120 capability. Uh, and then night vision goggles. They were interested in night vision goggles. And then some airspace things that were just kind of routinely popped up. Um, so it was funny. Anytime you got a, something from the Jazz app, you know, this, the secretary guy that was a civilian, he'd go, oh, yeah, hey, go look in the file cabinet. It's it's under, you know, airspace. And you go pull out the file and look at, okay, three years ago they asked, six years ago they asked. And, and so you go, okay, we remember what we said last time. Uh, but, uh, but they were doing some interesting stuff. And so air refueling was one that I ended up working right away. And and the, the funny thing about the Japanese was, was after World War II, they'd been, their treat, their, their constitution uh, forced them into be a defensive only force. And so they took that to heart. And actually F-15Js, the air refueling uh, section of the Eagle was removed. Um, the, the plumbing internal, uh, I think was still, some of it was still there, but there was a plate, a, an actual plate over the top of where the air refueling receptacle goes. So it was riveted down. I mean, so that you couldn't, it didn't, you couldn't open it. It was unopenable. Um, and so they took that pretty seriously. Um, but they were very interested in, in getting off island, um, offside of Japan to do some training. And one of the things they really wanted to do was a Cope Thunder up in Alaska. And they knew that they couldn't get to Alaska from Japan without air refueling. And so that's why they kept coming back to us and say, hey, is there a way we could, you know, maybe just get some kind of air refueling training to get a couple of jets up to Alaska for a Cope Thunder. Uh, and it was political to a large extent inside the JASDAP. And our answer was always, well, yeah, we could do that. It's not that hard, um, but you have to get approval and then we could set up a training program. So the answer kind of was always the same, um, but they never did it uh, at the time. And so they were, they were looking at uh, that again when I was working with them. Uh, and again, I think the answer was the same, but, but as we started, as I started thinking about it, I told them your, your biggest problem is political and your political problem is you're not asking for it the right way. Um, you know, getting air refueling capability to go to, to Cope Thunder is a waste of time. You need to come up with an air, you know, a defensive reason to have air refueling. And, and so I started kind of helping them formulate the concept of, uh, not using air refueling for uh, force projection, but for force sustainment. And so that you could uh, compound your capability of having, you have your air force by not having to land because you keep running out of gas while you're doing lane defense. Um, and that started to kind of, I think, spin the wheels with them. Uh, and so we started working on that a lot. And, and then one of the other things that I did right away, and this had to do with, again, trying to get to Coke Thunder, was we decided and they decided and I ended up becoming the project officer for the first uh, Cope North Guam exercise where we took a section of Jazz to F F-15Js to, uh, to Guam uh, to do an exercise over there. You mentioned off camera last time around that you had um, created two lanes um, mm, to, yeah. to, to provide the-, the um, That was later, yeah. It was but later, yeah. okay. Can you skip to that now? Or is... Sure. Um, so yeah, th this was later. Um, 
so the Cope North Guam ended up being uh, an exercise with the Dirty Dozen. So when I was in the 12th, um, the 12th came and did that one. So uh, the 12th ended up deactivating at Kadena and moved to, um, to Alaska. And so um, I moved to the, to the Cox after that, the 67th Fire Squadron attached with them. And so the 67th actually did a Cope North up in Chitose, up in Hokkaido, up in northern Japan later. We were working with Masawa, the F-15Js out of uh, out of Chitose, and us. We took uh, I think we had six or twelve, six or ten, twelve, something like that. F-15Cs we brought up from Okinawa to Chitose, and uh, for that exercise, this was later once we started really kind of developing these concepts. And so we brought some tankers up, and we set up uh, some lanes for defensive. It was a Korean defensive exercise. Uh, so we were flying out over the Sea of Japan between ja uh, Japan and Korea mainly. And so we set it up where we were, we could come in and, and um, basically get the jazz staff to have to uh, scramble and get up off the ground. But then the, the bandits would just depart. You know, they, they wouldn't let them engage. So they, they would actually have to commit because they'd meet commit criteria, but they'd drag out before, before the engagement happened. And so that basically the jazz was running out of gas and they, they'd have to recover and they didn't even get to fight. And we were in the next lane over and we were doing the same thing, but we would just go hit the tanker and then we'd go back out. And the next time they came in, we got to fight. So we'd come down and debrief. Here was what we did with our fight. And they'd be like, dang, we didn't get to fight. I'm like, well, if you would have went to the tanker, oh, you, you couldn't. Um, so we started kind of showing them practically that uh, that the tanker for a defensive scenario was incredibly useful uh, because it ex it extends the uh, ability of your force, right? So so if you don't have to go back and land because you still got all your weapons, uh, you don't have to scramble more aircraft, and you you basically increase the amount of airplanes that you have uh, through air refueling, which we always knew, but they they weren't uh, they weren't thinking of it that way in their for their defense only uh constitution so did that provide them with the i don't know the silver bullet that allowed them to make the case it did and we did one more exercise and this again was, was later um called keen edge keen edge is a big uh korean focused exercise for the jazda and we did it again uh in a much larger scale and uh and proved it you know, bigger. <laughs> and uh, that I think made a big impression on their Air Force and their senior leaders in their Air Force because Cope, Cope North uh, up at Chitose is kind of a local, that base exercise. The Keen Edge is kind of an, a Japan wide exercise. Uh, so a lot more people are looking at that. And uh, I think they did get a lot out of that. And, and the proof is in the pudding. They have air refueling now. They uh, ended up buying a, uh, a, a, uh, seven six seven based variant uh, tanker i think they got their first ones in 09 so so this was back in 2000 2000 2001 uh so it took them a little while to actually acquire it but they have them now so i like to i think i take credit for that <laughs> or, or you're to blame depending on on who's, who's talking yeah yeah so what uh what did you think of the japanese f-15 you know, guys then, were they, you know, it's interesting talking to people who do exchange tours and there are some nations flying the F-15 where people come back and they don't have anything nice to say. In fact, there are some <laughs> nations flying the F-16 where people come back right. and they don't have anything nice to say. But um, 
what was your what was your take on the the quality of their their flying and um, you know their work ethic and so on? Yeah, well, their work ethic was huge. Um, one of the things that uh, that I saw, and I think it, it tied a little bit into that, that air refueling discussion too, was you know you kind of think of the Japanese as a warrior culture, which they were, uh, but after the defeat um, in World War II, I think they really they really kind of went. Uh, off that a little bit where they were like, Hey, we, we still are proud. And, and they were great people. I, I loved the Japanese. I loved living in Japan. The people were fantastic, super, super good people. Um, but their warrior ethic was undertoned. They were, they were almost afraid to show it. Um, and so one of the things that I would say about that is when we, I was talking to some guys at Cope North Guam, you know, which is where I really got a chance to sit down and hang out and brief and debrief with, fighter pilots and we we're talking about air refueling because they knew that that's something that we were considering uh looking into in the future and they're one of the guys i remember he was kind of a young guy but he goes is it hard i mean i'm not even sure i could do it and i go dude it's just flying formation <laughs> you know you guys know how to fly formation it's just flying formation underneath the tanker you know and they stick you it's not hard uh and so we when we kind of went through that it where they visualize it then then it wasn't a problem um, and, and so for flying the, flying the Eagle, they, they're great pilots. They were, uh, they didn't employ the aircraft BVR. Well, and the big thing I would say is they were semi GCI dependent BVR and they, uh, they weren't autonomous. So American fighter pilots are taught to be autonomous. You know, we, we don't expect to have GCI. If it fails, I still go. Um, I still have to figure out how to do my sort. I still do all my calm. I still need to kill everybody as best I can before the merge and then kill everybody else after the merge. Um, they seem to be uh, dependent a lot on their GCI uh, to get them into the right area and to get help with their sorts. Um, and then once you got into the merge, they were great at BFM. <laughs> you know, they, they were real good. Uh, but I think that's what they did the most. I think they, they, being a, uh, an Air Force that didn't really leave their home, uh, they spent a lot of time flying BFM and ACM. So, so once you got into the visual fight, they were great. They just weren't super autonomous BVR, and they they would miss guys. You know, you you could get a single in almost every time. <laughs> we would do some kind of action when we were red air, and this and a singleton was almost always in uh, unobserved. Um, so where that, that just didn't happen to us, the Americans, we, we didn't let that happen. Uh, I mean, it could happen, but it was pretty common with them, um, to miss somebody. Uh, so I, I felt like their, their BVR long range stuff wasn't as good as ours, but their, uh, close in fights were, were comparable and they were real good in the, uh, in the visual fight. Were they cognizant of those differences? I mean, I, you, you sort of get the picture from what you're describing that, you know, it's a series of compromises on their part. So, you know, they, they, yeah. they know that maybe they could do these things, but they don't because of their, I don't know, their constitution or whatever it is that puts them on that defensive foot. Uh, potentially. And I think maybe some of it is also weapons limited. I mean, again, we had we had uh, M120 then and they didn't. They're, you know, they're AIM-7 only, AIM-7 and um, so they're tied a little bit more to uh, to carrying the missile all the way in. Um, they're, they don't have, you know, we were sweet three at the time. They're not sweet three. So th there could be some capability differences in the aircraft that caused my observation because um, it's not the same jet. Um, but it, uh, 
but they had GCI. I mean, we, when we were out at Cove North Guam and every time I flew against them, they had their E2s that were, uh, were doing their, uh, uh, you know, their airborne control. So, so they had, they should have had, I, I felt like they should have had as good an essay as we did. Um, and I didn't see it. Um, but, but again, I mean, I'm comparing them to, you know, weapons guys that I'm flying against in, in the dozen in the 67th, um, you know, and I don't think that's an uncommon thing for most countries I flew against uh, in the F-15. I felt I felt like some of them, you know, we just club like baby seals even in the visual fight. But but in general, most of them were were much better at dogfighting uh, with their particular aircraft and you know, whatever its strengths were uh, than they were in. And they weren't autonomous, and they didn't think beyond visual range. Uh, they lost people. They lost track of people. It was pretty normal. Uh, to to win big in the long range fight from the F fifteen. It's interesting you mentioned Sweet Three, and it just reminded me of a story I, I did. I did once interview somebody when I was writing a book, so not not for this podcast. Um, this was years ago, who, who had flown an exchange tour with the, the Japanese. Actually, he was still on it. It was coming to the end of it when I was talking to him, um, and he he talked about how they didn't want to not have the latest software loads. So suite, the suite, if anybody's not familiar with it, is the OFP, the, the operational flight program. So that's the mm. software that's run on the airplane that gives it many of its capabilities in addition to the, the hardware, of course. Um, so he said they would buy the OFP upgrades, but then they wouldn't buy the manuals. They were too tight. <laughs> yeah. They were too tight to buy the manuals. He said, so they have these capabilities, but they wouldn't know what the HOTAS was to activate them. So, right. they, so yeah. they, the radar could do something, but they didn't know how to make it do it because they hadn't bought the manuals. So Yeah, no, that's probably true. Do, do you, um, I mean, on, on that note, can you talk a little bit about um, software loads and, and the impact they can have on capabilities? I mean, there is a curious um, expression nowadays about the F-15, which is it's not your grandfather's F-15, which mm-hmm. is, you know, shows how old the airplane is. So from the outside, Right. It's pretty much the same, um, you know. But there's obviously been hardware, and then software is at the heart of everything. How, how much of an right. impact can a can a new um, OFP suite make, or a new radar tape make? Um, well, the difference between uh, suite two and suite three was was pretty big. I mean, there there was a lot of uh, new, not major capabilities. I mean, basically the airplane still mech, was mech about the same, but the uh, uh, it was better. It just, it just everything was just better, and and it worked better, and it. Uh, Held locks better. It sorted better. It you know just uh, held wet worked the weapons better. Everything everything was better. There weren't a whole lot of different you know new capabilities. Uh, sweet two to sweet three, just better. Um, I would say that after about the time I was leaving, when we're bringing in uh, AIM nine X and uh, Jehemix and a bunch of other you know really kind of game changer capabilities, where off course aim nine shots, uh, uh, being able to kind of cue with the helmet mounted cue, uh, those were huge and I didn't live it. So, um, so maybe I flew your grandfather's F-15, uh, but, uh, but yeah, some of the stuff with the HOTAS and, and again, I think maybe I was a little bit of a, ahead by going through mountain home because when I left Tyndall in the, uh, some of the oldest C models, uh, with the APG 63, no JTIDs, all that kind of stuff. When I went to the, to mountain home, the airplane was, was way different. You know, we had, uh, the APG 70, which ran a different suite than the APG 63. It was actually, uh, for even the air to air roll was, was a little bit different. And when we got the suite three, it enhanced that, 
Uh, so when I got to Kadena, now I'm flying APG 63 Sweet 3, which was a lot. It was basically the same uh, as the APG 70 prior to adding Sweet 3. It kind of brought it up to that. Um, and, and there was a few other things that were equal to the APG 70. So so it was pretty similar. But but I didn't have AISA, you know, and so the there was a lot of things that uh, they came up after I left that I know about, you know, but I, I don't have experience with. You mentioned, I think, in our, in our last interview that you want to be flying a certain amount per month, a certain amount per mm-hmm. week, uh, and you, you referenced 15 minutes or so ago that you would fly yeah. one, one week out of four with the, the guys right. at Kadena. What was that experience like then? And, and, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know whether or not... Yep you would get to the squadron and feel rusty. I mean, you, before you even step, you, you, you don't feel yeah. like you're, you're ahead of the power curve. There, there was occasionally times like that. Um, when I was with the dozen before it closed, um, I was flying quite a bit because I would actually, well, I left, like I mentioned that I left uh, mountain home in December. So my last flight was middle of December. I didn't get to uh, Tokyo until January and I didn't get down to Kadena the first time till February. So it was a couple of months. Uh, and when I got down in February, I didn't get to fly because I was showing up for the first time. Uh, so I did a couple of sims. I did some local area sims. Uh, so I made sure, you know, I touched, touched some controls and did that. And then when I came back in March was my first time I flew. Um, and I think I did one local area. So actually, I flew with Clouseau, the first one. He was uh, my IP. Um, but I, ha- I think I, I must have... I didn't fly a D model, so he must have just chased me to get my landing currency back up. Um, so I, I felt pretty rusty that day. <laughs> I remember that. Um, I did a simulator the day before we flew, and then we flew. And then after that, they were going into a surge, and I, uh, I actually, their, their scheduler there at the time, the guy at Not So Cool, which became a good friend of mine. Um, but I'd call Not So and say, hey, I'm coming down, or when's the next surge, because that's when I'm coming. Um, and so I kind of planned to always come down the week of the surge, which gets you three sorties a day. Um, so if I could come for a week, I could get you know, about nine sorties a week. Um, and of course, there, I wasn't flying for three weeks, sometimes maybe four uh, between. But if you could get nine in a week, that was pretty good. By the end of the, by the, end of the you know, nine sorties, I felt like I was back to where I ought to be. And then I was leaving for a month. Um, so yeah, it wasn't great. I didn't like that part uh, of it, but uh, and and I may have mentioned, and, and this is one of the reasons that even though I was a mission commander, uh, qualified type guy, I I almost always flew on the wing uh, when I came down to Kadena. I was just a a very experienced wingman. So when we'd go do two v twos or four v fours, I mean, I I, I want to say that people were like, hey, you can come, you can be my number four. Because uh, having a, an 1,800-hour, <laughs> you know, multi-tour Eagle guy as number four is pretty good, uh, even if he hasn't flown in a couple of weeks. Um, so so I, I got to fly quite a bit. When, when the dozen closed um, to go up to uh, to go up to Alaska, and we only had two Eagle squadrons left at Kadena, and I came over to the, to the Cox, um, then I didn't get to as much flying, and, and it was largely because a lot of the guys from the dozen that didn't uh, hadn't PCS yet, they kind of infiltrated the two other squadrons. So we kind of had too many people, and when there's you know too many pilots, the g- dude that only comes down once a month is not high priority. Um, so I was only getting maybe the three I was required 
um, a month unless we were deployed, you know, unless I joined it someplace. Uh, like when I went up to Chitose to uh, support that Code North, I got several sources that week. Um, but but yeah, not as not as much as I'd like. And and when the weather's crappy and you haven't flown in a month, and that first one is you know three hundred and one, uh, and you're in the weather all the way up, it's that's pretty sucky. Um, but uh, it was okay. I, I would rather do it than not do it. Um, but there was days I was definitely not on my you know A game on the first one. What rank were you? And and if I may ask, how old were you at this time? I was about 32, 33. I was a major. Um, and uh, I actually, yeah, I was a major the whole time. So I pinned on major there. I had been promoted already, but uh, pinned on at at Yakota um, shortly after I got there. Mark. What was the uh, what was the airspace like in Japan? I mean, are they geared to the military flying exercises? I, the one thing I've yeah. noticed recently is... I say recently over over the last few years. I mean, there was a there was an F eighteen crash, and uh, he hit the tanker, and there was a, an SH sixty that dropped a door or something. And it, you know, from the media that I've seen, it, it feels like you know the, the people of Japan are not that keen on those sorts of things. Um, <laughs> did you get a lot of restrictions on airspace? Could you do what you wanted? Out of Kadena, we could do almost anything we wanted, and and the reason was because when you take off out of Kadena, in about. Uh, 15 seconds you're over the water. And uh, and then once you're over the water, all of our main airspace was all over the water. Um, so it was surface to uh, infinity, uh, supersonic everywhere. So so the airspace was really good. Um, it just, you're not, you know, you're not over land. So, uh, so there's no good visual references. When you try to fly low, there's no land, you know. And so, so it's kind of, to some extent, I guess, kind of like being in the Navy, being off a carrier, except for your, your base isn't that far away. You know, it's not blue water ops where you can't get to land. You can always get back. Uh, but everything you do is out over the water. So chaff, flare, uh, supersonic, every, you know, it was it was actually really good compared to Mountain Home where everything I did was pretty much over land. And we did have some of those restrictions. Or because it's Mountain Home, you know, the AGL elevation over our some of our airspace was 5,000 feet. So, you know, even 5,000 feet for your mid-altitude is now – 10 uh, to maybe 12, 15,000 feet. So, so performance wise, there's a big difference between five and 10,000 feet on the engines. Uh, so, so you could actually get down there and, and do uh, stuff at lower levels and, and get everything you could out of the jet. Uh, so I, I liked that. The airspace there was actually good. Um, and then we would do some stuff up in Korea. When we were flying up in Japan, like up in Chitose, we had a lot of restrictions up over mainland Japan. Uh, mostly noise and stuff. And then there was a lot of problems. Not, And this is, that didn't come out right. Not problems with the Okinawans. The, there was, you know, some people may not know this, the, the Okinawans and the Japanese weren't always friendly. Uh, and so there was a lot of things that the Okinawans would say in public about the Americans because they were needling Tokyo, not really against us. And they would kind of say that they'd go, Hey, we're going to put this out. Don't worry about it. We're not really mad at you guys, but we have, we have to say something. Um, now, of course there were, there were things with largely it was Marines, not usually airmen, uh, but incidents with women and stuff like that downtown that weren't good. And that caused bad relations between the Americans and the Okinawans. Cause that was 
tension between you know the two. Uh, but a lot of stuff we heard was was more uh, Okinawa versus Tokyo to some extent. But they, they did build, I know we built a wall while I was there uh, to a noise abatement wall between the airfield and, and a little section of town that I don't think probably did a lot, but maybe uh, they were happier with it. Can we talk a little bit about the the threat then? So you've obviously got you, you mentioned that a different numbered air force is responsible for Korea, but, uh, but you know Korea is not very far away. There's the possibility of China coming down the Taiwan Straits. I mean, what mm -hmm. what did um, what was the realistic view then as to what would happen if either of those kicked off? Yeah, well, uh, Kadena had a responsibility for to go up to Korea. Um, we we would work um, some stuff with the Japanese themselves, but. But largely, the JASDAF was going to do a lot of that. And we had uh, an alert location up at Koinju, up in uh, the southern tip of Korea, that we practiced going to uh, out of Kadena. So, so, yeah, we would go up there. And, uh, you know, there was different war plans, obviously, and I can't talk about the specifics. But, uh, but in the Pacific, uh, the Korean war plan was pretty much an all-out effort you know so there were a lot of people that were going to be coming in and they were going to be coming in all over um in japan in uh in uh, okinawa and up into the peninsula um so so everybody had their location and their and their uh priorities and that we practiced that a lot obviously with fifth air force um japan's primary threat was uh that potentially korean scenario um and so we worked that was what they were most interested in and what we worked with them a lot on. I th you, you mentioned, obviously, a 23 to 1 kill ratio in, uh, yeah. in red flag, uh, helpful against uh, uh, an anniversary mm. like Korea that maybe not be technically advanced, but has, has the numbers. Um, right. What, what, did, what would, um, you know, within the realms of the unclassified, what would that have looked like? I mean, did you, would you have had to have brought in lots more eagles um, to make sure you could do it? Um, I don't know if we needed a lot more. Um, they, there was a lot of assets on Korea already. Um, so if you bring the uh, three squadrons of F-15s up from Okinawa, um, as well as assets off carriers, there's obviously a lot of uh, um, carrier capabilities that would be moving in. Um, Japan is one of the only countries in the world that's not the U.S. that had a station, carrier station. The Kitty Hawk was stationed uh, in Japan. Um, so that, uh, that was always available. Um, so I don't, I don't know, I can't remember the specific amount of assets that would be coming in to support. I mean, there were some, uh, definitely, but, uh, but with the F-15Js, I mean, they had, I think 12 squadrons or something like that of F-15Js, um, arrayed across their nation plus their, their, uh, F-4Js and, and, uh, so they, they had, you know, a pretty decent air force. Um, and we expected them to be there. <laughs> you know, if, if they're defending themselves, we would be helping. That was our job. But uh, but they ought to be doing part of it themselves. Uh, and then, of, of course, we had the F-16s up in Misawa, too. Um, so they would be involved. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there was, a, there, was plan, there was a lot of plans for a lot of stuff to be coming over. Um, but, yeah. Was there, was there any at that time... I, and I just don't know, so it's, it, I'm not asking because I, I already sort of feel like I know the answer. But but at that time, you know, there there is some tension, isn't there, over islands in the middle of the sea? 
um, mm-hmm. which which you know China has claimed um, ownership of, and Japan refutes that. Right. Was that kind of stuff going on at the time? Um, you know, did, did China yeah. factor into their thinking as as to potential conflict? Yeah, I mean, China was always back then. It wasn't. I mean, it's more now. Um, but back then, it was uh, it was always something you know to be uh, concerned about. And there was those things were going on then too. Uh, and of course, you know, Japan fought several uh, pretty major wars with China. Uh, over its history, so so it was one of those kind of uh, ancient hatred enemies that they didn't like to deal with, and they knew that uh, Okinawa was the closest place uh, to China, and so if you had a China scenario, it's a different scenario to some extent for the U.S., uh, but for Japan, they're probably going to still have to deal with uh, the Korean uh, access point because because Korea and China were allies. Um, at least North Korea. Um, so there, there was a lot of uh, intermixing between those uh, thought processes, and, and we kind of worked both sides. Um, I don't know if you can hear that. I apparently, just got about a hundred emails. Um, but uh, anyway, so so yeah, there was we were uh, interested in that stuff too, and and that was one of the reasons that they wanted to develop uh, the air refueling capability after we started developing it and talking about it because they're like oh well that could help us a lot down there and uh also they wanted to integrate and and i was part of some development of a new AWACS for them too uh, because the e2s were getting pretty old in the tooth and they wanted something with more capability uh and so i I think i think that what they ended up with is actually a combo it's it's a new AWACS tanker combo uh which is good for them do you want to shut that off? I think it's over. Well, it's a denial of service attack. <laughs> no, it's actually I, I bumped the mouse and my computer woke up and it's telling me all my email I got for the last couple hours. Okay. Uh, but, hmm. uh, so, so, so with regards to um, China, and again, you, you may just pass on on the question, which is fine, of course. But um, you know, there is. Um, you know, there, there is an electronic attack plan that that someone like China will have. You know, they're gonna they're gonna come at you and they're gonna mm-hmm. deny you your ability to network and do all the things that you talked about in in our, the series mm-hmm. of interviews. You know, sort of data linking, sense of fusion from off platforms uh, from from other assets, um, comms jamming, all that kind of stuff. Um, did, when you when you train. Do you ever train to that? Do you ever say, okay, well, you're going to pretend that your radar can't see someone at this range and it can only see them at this range, or that you're not going to have, you're going to have range only or, or azimuth only, but no range? Or... Yeah. Um, in the jet, that's hard to do. We do it in the simulator. Um, so we can simulate those type of threats, um, and then you get it, right? So what you see is based on those uh, threat capabilities. Um, so it's it's easier to do in the simulator than in the jet because it's hard to pretend you don't you don't see something. Um, but in the simulator, I can make it so I can't see it, right? So that you do get it last minute, and then you learn. Oh crap! You know, if they're doing that, I'm going to get a late picture or or no picture, or you know, somebody's going to show up at the merge. Um, so so that uh, that I think is is how we work to kind of develop those skill sets. Um, 
it's just hard in in the uh, in the air to do that. Um, and some of that, I mean, I, I wasn't flying, but I I did it later. I was I was at Paycom. Um, I was uh, working for the Admiral there, and, and I did strategy. And some of that uh, stuff, most of the China stuff was happening then because uh, when I was at Paycom was when they did their uh, ASAT shot and took down a satellite. Um, so, so we were learning that they were growing in capabilities. Um, but while I was at Fifth, I was part of the uh, team that uh, called FETAP, Far East Tactics Analysis Team, that took um, a lot of intelligence sensors that were watching adversary nations do their own training and then coming back. And so uh, they needed a fighter pilot to listen to the comms. And uh, basically I would draw out what they were doing based on the intercepted communications. And we could tell kind of uh, with some analysts, uh, linguists and analysts, uh, are they getting better? Are they, are they, what are they doing? What are they training? Are they getting good at it? Can they, are they, cap- are their capabilities getting better or worse? Uh, and I, that was really interesting. So I uh, had a, had a great opportunity to be part of that and then pass that back out, you know, re- via uh, training opportunities to the CAF, to, to, to the combat air forces. Like, Hey, here's what we're seeing that they're actually doing uh, and their success rates and such. But what was your view as a as a professional um, military aviator then on those sorts of uh, sort of simulated um, outcomes? So if you if you knew how many of something somebody had and what its capabilities were, and then you also had the other missing piece of the puzzle, which was how good are they at doing it or using it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is what day one, day two, day three would look like. Mm-hmm. And the reason I ask is because. You know, it seems like all military predictions are, are grossly wrong. So, um, yeah. you know, I, you know, Desert Storm as an example. I, I don't remember mm-hmm. the figure off the top of my head. Maybe you do because you were there and you did it. But you know, there were going to be massive losses in the. Oh, uh, we were going to, we were going to, we were going to get what? I mean, they were going to be really good, and we were going to lose a bunch of jets. Yeah. So having having then seen then what the process is, having done this sort of analysis of of these sort of uh, secret intercepts. Uh, did, do you sort of look at it and still think it's a little bit of a sort of black magic or, 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 or is there some method to it? I think there's method to it, but I think you never know what it's really going to be like until you start experiencing it. Um, one of the other things I did when, when I was at SAS, our School of Advanced Air Power Studies, we were invited as a class. There was only 27 of us, but we were invited as a class to, to augment the futures game. So this was, you know, this was right after, uh, uh, right after 9-11, so it would have been 2000, might have still been in 2001, maybe early 2002. Um, uh, anyway, we were, or not 2000, yeah, yeah, 2000. Anyway, we went, and they, they built two scenarios, and it was a China scenario, but but they, uh, they said, okay, we're going to be going to war against China, and in one scenario, it's going to be the Air Force we have, and in scenario two, it's this future Air Force that had all these weapons that we don't have. And, and I'm like, okay, well, how can you pretend to know what weapons you don't have are going to actually do? But 
okay, we'll see. So it was space weapons and all this stealth capability that was, you know, we were getting, but it wasn't really fielded. All that, all that stuff wasn't out yet. Um, hypersonic missiles and stuff. And of course, at the end of the exercise, the future of Force One, right? <laughs> so I'm like, was couldn't we have just postulated that? Because we wasted a week. <laughs> and if we would have found at the end of this exercise that it didn't work, would we not, would we go, okay, well, screw it. We're not going to do any of that. I mean, come on. So, so I felt like we, there was a lot of effort. It was a major high level exercise with a lot of high powered people. Uh, and I'm like, I could have written the report before we did it um, to, to a large extent, uh, just based on tell me what you think these weapons can do. And I'll tell you what I think is going to be the outcome. Um, but I still think there's value in it to some extent because you have to um, at least run uh, simulations to see uh, how that will work. But but when you do that, I think the most critical thing is the assumptions you put into the system, right? So, so if your assumption, for example, in the Pacific is that uh, they're not going to take out any of our comms, um, that's a pretty bad assumption, you know, and because it forces you into not preparing for things that you probably ought to be ready for uh, with extra, you know, redundant capabilities and such. And, and I felt like uh, sometimes we did that where, where, yeah, maybe the weapons part was okay, but the assumptions were overly broad or sometimes so off that it's not realistic um, you know, not to the, maybe the engagement level, but at the operational and strategic level. What, what came next? Okay. So, uh, so yeah, I ended up, um, staying at Kadena work in there. Actually, I was there for about 18, I was only there for about 18 months, which was a little unfortunate. As I said, I got promoted. And uh, when I got promoted, I was also selected for uh, intermediate service school in residence. Um, so for the Air Force, that meant I was going to uh, school. And, and that was at Maxwell Air Force Base. So I, I left there in the summer of uh, 2000, 2000 and went to uh, Maxwell Air Force Base for Air Command and Staff College. Uh, and then while I was at Air Command and Staff College, uh, I applied for and ended up getting selected for our School of Advanced Air Power Studies, which I kind of mentioned a second ago, which was a follow-on uh, master's degree program as a be, to become an air power strategist. Uh, so, so while I was doing uh, those things is when 9/11 actually happened. Uh, you know, on uh, September 11th in 2001, I was a SAS student. Uh, I remember that day vividly. I was you know driving to work and. Uh, uh, the, I heard on the radio just, you know, between songs, it was almost a, just a casual, uh, Hey, there's been an airplane crashed into the world trade center. And I, and so as a pilot, my first thought was, Oh my gosh, uh, the weather must be terrible. And I wonder if it was a, you know, a civilian that was off course or, or how did it, how did a airliner get vectored into a building in, in bad weather? That's, so all these things are kind of going through my mind as I'm uh, driving into the parking lot. And so I, uh, I got out of the car, walked in the building, and, and as I kind of turned a corner, there was three or four guys standing around the television set. And, and I saw, you know, the first tower, the second tower hadn't been hit yet, uh, but the first tower is burning and it's 
the sky is clear. And I, I knew immediately that couldn't, that's not an accident. Uh, you know, it couldn't have been an accident. You don't run into a building by accident uh, like that. And then I saw, you know, the second one hit. And of course that uh, changed a lot uh, going forward uh, for our course. I mean, we, uh, you know, learning air power strategy and, and not necessarily, uh, although they had classes in uh, the small war and, and terrorism and, and those kind of things, they, you know, it took on a new flavor uh, as we finished that. And, and so while that was going on, I, before I got my SAS slot, I actually had an assignment to NORAD. Uh, my wife is from Colorado Springs, so it was kind of a, hey, I know I have to go to the S word after school. Uh, so let's do something for the family. And if I can get to NORAD, uh, you know, they have a air sovereignty mission there. My F-15 time is valuable there. Uh, I can uh, I can hopefully get into ops or plans and, and help support uh, NORAD. So I had already gotten the position, and when I got SAS, that fell off. And so uh, I was still trying to figure out how do I get back to NORAD as, as a staff officer. And I had brought it up to uh, to the SAS leadership, and, and at the time, they kind of called NORAD SNORAD, you know, because nothing was going on. Well, after 9-11, that was no longer the case. Uh, and so I was uh, selected to go to NORAD and help develop um, Homeland Air Defense uh, doctrine and operational stuff for Operation Noble Eagle with the U.S. and Canada for a couple of years. And uh, so I was there as we brought on U.S. NORTHCOM and a lot of other changes um, that happened uh, in the U.S. as well as with North American Aerospace, Aerospace Defense Command. Uh, so, I mean, we could talk a little bit about that if you want, or, or we can move on to another flying job. But, um, while I was there, I was promoted to Lieutenant Colonel pinned on and then selected for command. And, uh, that's when I ended up going to, uh, going to the T6 to be an initial cadre to bring the T6 into the air force. Can we just talk about Nora just for a little bit? I think yeah, um, sure. you know, get, getting to the T6 would be good. And, and I know we're, we're, we're once again um, <laughs> running, running short on time. But um, yeah. so, so Noble Eagle, as you just referenced, was the, the response to that, this sort of shutting down of airspace to, to protect mm-hmm. it from any, any further airliners. And then that continued for many. Does it continue to today? Uh, I, I, I don't know if it's technically still going on, but it, it went for a long time. Uh, it's if it is, it's still part of the guard. The guard is the primary uh, for the U.S. Um, the Air Guard is our primary folks for doing air sovereignty anyway. Uh, so it's it'd be largely a guard mission run out of the CONAR, which is a continental operation, continental NORAD region that's uh, run out of Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. And so the idea is that you, you know, if, if any aeroplane comes along again, um, well, this is a scenario, and, and threatens mm-hmm. to do the same again, crash into somewhere, mm-hmm. um, you, you're going to shoot it down before it, it manages to do that. Yeah, well, that's that's theoretically the plan. Um, I, re- I was part of helping develop uh, General Everhart's uh, testimony to the 9-11 Commission. And uh, one of the things that we talked about a lot was uh, because, uh, you know, of course, Congress looked at it and said, how did this happen? How did we let it happen? Why didn't we shoot him down? And, well, there was a lot of reasons for that. And most of them were that nobody was looking at an internal threat. Uh, there was, by origin, not a threat, right? So we didn't, nobody, uh, there was nobody's mission that uh, monitored 
U.S. airlines to see if they're going to decide to crash into things. Um, so that hadn't really been contemplated. Um, and so one of the things that General Albright told Congress was, what would you be, what would my uh, testimony look like if we shot down a civilian airliner and you were wondering if it was actually hijacked or, or wondering if it was going to be crashed? Or what if the aircraft that went down in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, you know, the Todd Raider guys that rushed the cockpit, what if they succeeded and flew it back and landed it? but we shot it down because we couldn't talk to them. Uh, you know, th there's so many what ifs and that, that, that particular mission set is a, is a chocolate mess of potential failure um, in every way uh, added that even if we did shoot something down, what if it went down then in a worse place than if we let it go to the target, uh, like in the middle of the city instead of into a military uh, facility, which obviously both are bad. Um, but, you know, one could it, could it eventually be worse. Um, and to me, it was personal. I mean, the, uh, the co-pilot in, in Flight 93 that went down in Shanksville was a good friend of mine, uh, Leroy Homer. Uh, he was an academy uh, next door neighbor. We were, you know, went to the academy together. And, uh, and so we were really good friends then and uh, went different ways in our Air Force careers. But, but, yeah, when I found out, you know, a good buddy of mine, uh, was dead that day flying for American airlines instead of uh, the air force. So it was tough. Um, but I still, I, you know, that, that, that whole ROE for shooting down a civilian airliner, even if it's hijacked is a conundrum and, uh, and something that we, you know, we had to wrestle with and figure out and build procedures for, but, but, uh, I hope we never have to do it. I really hope we never have to do it. You know, without getting into the the specifics then of the, the decision making process or, or the matrix, um, is is it in your view robust enough then that somebody, the person who's going to have to pull the trigger or hit the pickle button, can feel confident they can do it? Uh, yeah, the, I think I was saying there's a ton of steps in it before you get to fulfill the ROE enough to shoot. Um, so I hope so. Uh, but again, even with that. And, and when we did kind of exercise scenarios to play that out um, at Norag when I was there, the results weren't always, you know, what we'd hope. And again, sometimes it was that the, uh, you know, crap that we shot it down, but it hit Ottawa, you know. <laughs> so instead, we don't, maybe it was trying to hit a military target. And th this was, I think, one of the biggest conundrums is, is do you let the thing hit the military target? Uh or, or how do you shoot it down so it doesn't hit and cause other destruction? And, and have you condemned the passengers to death uh, potentially when that may not happen? What, what if the you know, terrorist decides, I don't want to die for Allah today? Uh, you know, I guess I'm assuming it's Islamic. That's probably bad. Um, but uh, there, again, it, it is a, that is a mission set that, that uh, yes, we're prepared to do. Uh, again, I hope we never have to do it. Uh, and and yes, the criterion to d get to that point is, is very robust, but man, I don't know. I don't know if it's a good one. It's kind of like you asked you know, about going on a nuclear strike. You know, I kind of never figured I'd get there. Uh, I think this one's a no-lose situation or a no-win, kind of a no-win situation too. 
that was going to be my next question. You know, is there a parallel between that and the idea mm-hmm. of going to drop a, <laughs> a, a, a nuclear weapon on 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 a target? So, um, yeah. and whether or not you really give it much thought ahead of time, or if you just say, "Well, I'll deal with those emotions or those thought processes when I get there." I, I think I think it's probably tougher to shoot down a civilian airliner. Uh, you know, we're not at war with the people who are in there. Uh, to some, I, th- I just, I, I think I would be tougher. You, you mentioned a minute ago that, um, you, you know, the, the, you never looked inwardly. The, the the threat was never within, it was without. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that then? You know, the Russian propensity for coming along and testing response mm-hmm. times up in Alaska and, and, and yeah. even sometimes just transiting down the coast, um, right. you know, down past Florida to, to Cuba. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that still occurs, um, you know, in, in the F-22 area, we've got F-22s up in Alaska. I've seen pictures recently of F-22s uh, next to bears. Um, but yeah, they would test. Uh, I don't, I don't know. Nec- I don't know that they were messing with us as much as just practicing flying. Uh, and then of course, you know, we would, we would do the same thing, right? We would fly over there and get close and see what they come up and do. Um the, the, I think some important things happened over the years where we uh, got better at communicating those kind of things so that we it wasn't necessarily dangerous all the time. Uh, it didn't mean that did, we didn't scramble because they didn't tell us. Uh, we did, and we do. Um, but I think uh, we built some procedures and some uh, inter-aircraft communication capabilities uh, with, with wiggling your wings and stuff like that that have have helped keep us from having problems. I don't know if you remember, we had a um, midair with a Chinese fighter and a, I think it was a P3. P2. Or um, P, one of our aircraft. EP3. EP3. Yeah, could have been an EP3. Anyway, so, I mean, those those kind of international incidents are, you know, are bad. And, and when you're close to other people's places, uh, the possibility goes up. And so, um I don't blame them for doing some training and uh, I don't think they blame us when we do it either. Did you see, um, speaking of which, did you see recently, probably a year or so ago, the, the video of the Su-27 um, getting very, very close to the F-15? So oh, it, was, mm-hmm. it was a Lake Aneath F-15. And I don't know what they were yeah. doing. They were out in the Baltics in, in yeah. I suppose. What, what did you think of that? Uh, I mean, again, I've been intercepted by other folks before, mostly when I was in the 111. I didn't get intercepted by people much in the Eagle that I didn't know about. (laughs) When I was in the 111, every once in a while, we'd get uh, intercepted by a lot of times like the French and other folks who flying through their country. Um, So, again, I don't think it's necessarily uh, completely uncommon and usually not in international airspace uh, to get that close without talking to each other. Uh, and without coordinating, but uh, so they were really close. Um, I think they were being a little, you know, provocative. Uh, but but of course, when you're on the wing, you can't really shoot each other, right? <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's it's a tense moment. But uh, I'd be more worried if they were camping out in my six, you know, with a spike with a spike on, than than kind of coming up right next to me. Uh, that that seems almost more like communication than a threat to some extent, even though it's still provocative. 